sing to George Bailey? Help him, dear father. Joseph, Jesus, and Mary, help my friend, Mr. Bailey. Help my son, George, tonight. He never thinks about himself, God. That's why he's in trouble. George is a good guy. Give him a break, God. I love him, dear Lord. Watch over him tonight. Please, God, something's the matter with Daddy. Please bring Daddy back. So the classic Christmas movie, which is It's a Wonderful Life, and a really kind of a classic picture of prayer. The story of George Bailey, manager of the savings and loan in Bedford Falls, New York, and things aren't going well, he's gotten depressed, he's suicidal. And so all these prayers are being lifted up for, for him from various traditions, various kinds of ways that people pray. And, and that's kind of a picture that some people have a prayer, you know, kind of all these prayers coming up from billions of people all around the world being lifted up, various languages and tongues, various ways that people kind of address the Almighty and they go up to heaven and there's God and he kind of gets all this stuff and he kind of goes, okay, yeah, that's, I'll say yes to you and yes to you and maybe not yet to you and so on. It's just sort of that idea. And, uh, you know, kind of like, okay, I guess maybe that's the way it works. Well, Christians sort of have the same kind of vision perhaps as they uh, kind of uh, look at uh, the, the idea of prayer sort of being like a, um, a kind of a, uh, a sort of a Jacob's ladder. And uh, it kind of comes up and we kind of toss our prayers up there and we kind of hope that... Uh, They'll get up there. You know, have you ever tried tossing something up a group of stairs? You ever tried to do that? It doesn't go very well when you try to lob your laundry up from the basement to the first floor. It just kind of falls flat. And so there are people who say, you know, it's like my prayers are hitting the ceiling, whatever that means. But I sort of understand what it is that they're talking about when the prayers kind of go up. Well, prayer is one of those holy habits observed by faithful followers of Jesus Christ. It's one of the essential marks of a true follower of Jesus, one of the first that we learn to adopt. As Pastor Tom said when he began this series on the holy habits, these holy habits are necessary for Jesus to go about recreating us into members of and workers for his kingdom. It is Jesus who will recreate us, you understand, not these holy habits, but Jesus often uses holy habits like this to make us into new people. Now, as we've already heard, Bible reading and worship are essential aspects of our becoming more like Jesus. And God uses them to help us along the way. But they do so by placing us in a place of encounter with God. Like when you come here weekly to worship, you're coming into a place where perhaps you will encounter God, as maybe you've already done in some way. And like when you put your eyes in front of a Bible on a daily basis or a Bible app, you're putting yourself into a place of encounter with God who can transform us as we come into his presence. Well, the same is true of prayer. Prayer is one of those habits that places us in a place of encounter. It doesn't necessarily change us but the God who we meet when we pray does. Now, Jesus had a life of prayer. 
such as nobody had ever seen before and probably nobody has ever seen since. Now, let's say this. He was born into a prayerful people, a people that prayed to God at various times to the day, prayed about everything in their life. So in this, he was no different than the Jews of his day. But there was something different about his praying. There was an intensity to his prayer as when he got up very early in the dark and went out to pray by himself with his heavenly father. And there was a dedication to his prayer as he would often interrupt himself and go off to a place and spend time in prayer with his heavenly father. So it wasn't too long after they started following and that his disciples began to notice this, that his prayer was different than any other they'd have seen before. And they wondered if he could teach them how to do it themselves. And so one of them finally gets courage to ask him about it. And that story and of how Jesus responds to that question is found in Luke chapter 11, 1 to 4, which we're going to look at today. It's in most of your Bibles in front of you on page 735. So why don't you turn there now to Luke 11, 1 to 4, either there or in your uh, handheld device, so we can look at a very familiar passage, perhaps in a new way, because there are some very beautiful facets to this very old gem of a teaching. I believe we'll see that the key to developing this holy habit, a life of prayer such as Jesus had, is found in repeatedly making this request of that first disciple, reading in verse one. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples told him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples? That's the request that you and I need to keep on making to God. Lord, teach us to pray, or more personally, Lord, teach me to pray. That's the key to developing a life of prayer, is that you ask God to teach you how to do it. To admit that you and all of us who follow Jesus really don't know how to do it, and that we need the Lord's help to pray. It's that simple, and it's that profound. Because in Romans 8.26, Paul states that we don't know how to pray as we should. And he includes himself in that statement. And then he goes on to say that we need the guidance, we need the inspiration, we need the presence of God to teach us how to do it. Now, I grew up in a traditional church where we had beautiful prayers that came from a prayer book. And I remember they were comforting to me, but I had no way on God's green earth that I was ever going to be able to pray like that. And so when I first met Jesus years later, I thought, well, is that how I have to do it? Is that what you do? Did you learn how to do that kind of stuff? You know, and I, how do I do this thing, prayer? And I remember asking God, how do you want me to talk to you? How do I do this? And I asked other people. And I've been doing so ever, ever since. Uh, but the reality is, I, I still don't know how to do it some 45 years later, except in a rudimentary sense that I've been doing it, so it's sort of a habit. But it's sort of like each time I pray, I really do need to say to God, Lord, teach me how to do this. Teach me what it is that I should be saying to you, how you want me to be addressing you about the concerns that I have. So that's the key. Well, here's how the model of prayer goes that Jesus gives us. He gives us this prayer 
not as something that we're to pray, you know, sort of go ahead and do this. In fact, in the Matthew's gospel, he says, pray like this. This is sort of a summary of the prayer life of Jesus. It kind of gets us a picture of the things that he was praying about as he was here on earth. And so it gives us some direction and some guidance. It becomes a model of prayer for us. And so in verse 2, he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Jesus' life of prayer can be summed up in, really in one word, Father. Jesus had this amazingly intimate relationship with the God of the universe, whom he called his Father. Literally, using the language of his day, he called him his Abba, which is what a baby would say, maybe, to Dad, Abba. It means literally Daddy. Now, his people, the Jews, spoke of God as Father and perhaps the Father of Israel, but never would they say God was their Father, certainly not my Father. Never would they say my Dad. Oh, my gosh. But Jesus did that. He called God my Father, and he also called him our Father, and that's what he teaches here. You see, he wants each of us to come into this intimate, close relationship with God such that we can call him our Dad. That's the amazing reality of the prayer life of Jesus is that the God of the universe that comes to us through him calls us his children, even considers us his friends. And so we reciprocate by treating him as a friend and even calling him our dad. Now for some of us, and maybe Jesus' first disciples too, this image of father isn't all that positive in terms of the relationship we've had with our human fathers. And so later in this teaching, Jesus contrasts the image of the good heavenly father with the image of human fathers who can be evil. But he goes on to talk about how this father is constantly wanting to give good gifts to his children who ask him. And so I got to say that you need to kind of deal with this idea that God is your heavenly father. If you have issues with that, And there's a whole segment of the church that's trying to take father language away. Probably because it just is kind of, it feels too kind of masculine and that's sort of a negative deal. But this is the relationship that Jesus had with God. It's as father. You need to get healed if that's a problem for you. If you've had pictures, negative pictures that have come to you of who God the Father is, you need to replace those with the images that we have in that song that we sing here. You're a good, good Father. It's who you are. It's who you are. Maybe after the service, if you've been struck by this, that you can't relate to God in this way at all, that you see him as some distant kind of guy up there, he's kind of aloof, he may even be mean to you and to other people, you need to bring that to God. Because he'll help you with that. He'll say, I'm sorry you've been deceived about me. I, I can help you with that. I can bring you into this beautiful relationship that my son had with me. And you can have it too as my daughter or my son as my friend. That is so key to having a life with God is that you have a relationship with this amazing father who, though he's in heaven, he is for us. He is with us. But just as surely as he shows us the approachability of God, the intimacy of our Heavenly Father, he reminds us of the holiness of God, that he is different from us in a very particular uh, place. Let's say the next phrase together from the screen. 
hallowed be your name. God is holy. He is perfect in all of his ways. He's pure love, pure truth, pure mercy. And we are not, except to the degree that we can enter into his life and into his kingdom through Jesus. But over time, and particularly through our life of prayer, his holiness in that respect should begin to sort of be seeping into us and reflected in our way of life. There's an old Christian saying originally in Latin that goes, as we pray, so we believe, and so we live. And so your way of living and your way of believing is really shown in the way you pray. Shallow prayer leads to shallow believing, leads to shallow living. But deep and holy prayer leads to deep and holy believing in a holy God who is hallowed and deep and holy living. That's the way it goes. Your prayer life is so important in that respect. Now Jesus now invites us to engage in the ultimate reality of history. And join me in saying it up there on the screen. Your kingdom come your will be done, and some add, as on earth as it is in heaven. By the way, any differences that we have between our Bibles, refer back to what Pastor Lou talked about in his teaching on engaging the Bible, how what we have in our hands or in front of us on the screen is based on science, the science of archaeology and the science of translation. Archaeology recovering early but not original manuscripts of what Jesus was teaching, and translation, taking the original languages and rendering them in English. And so that creates some differences between those who are using those sciences as they seek to get the best way of saying this in our contemporary language. But I just gotta say, any differences that we observe are minor, and none of them have to do with major doctrines or significant practices of the life in Christ, such as this teaching on prayer. Now, in the case of this phrase about his kingdom, it's clear that we are to submit to his gracious rule in every aspect of our lives. So instead of praying what you and I might want to pray, which is, your kingdom come, or thy kingdom come, but my will be done. You ever pray that way? Thy kingdom come, Lord, but my will be done, okay? Please, don't mess with me. We're praying, Thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done. Oh my gosh, I want your will to be done in my life. It, it's, it's a value of submission. Why? Because Jesus talked a lot and a lot and a lot about this kingdom of God, his rule being developed in this world and completed in the next world. This really is the big deal in life, this kingdom of God rather than politics or religion or relationships. The big deal in life is the kingdom of God. And yet, in many ways, its influence rises or falls on the decisions made by you and me, some of which are described in that listing of words there. It's why we're encouraged to pray about the kingdom of God, which may seem to you like, what the heck is that? Well, it has to do with Jesus' rule in every aspect of life. Yes, in government, yes, in politics, yes, in relationships, but also, more importantly, really, in your life and my life. 
to remember that this great and good kingdom of God is what we want to be a part of and we want to invite everybody into it because it's a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. It's something that other people who are not followers of Jesus, they're looking for that too. That's what they ultimately want. And we say, we know somebody who can deliver it as people submit to his kind and gracious rule. There's no better place to be than to be in the kingdom of God. That's why we, he says, pray it. Remember, it's not about the events of history per se, you know, just a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. This, there's something going on that God's working. So the first part of this prayer is really interesting. It, it recognizes who it is that we're praying to. Kind of, duh, why not? It's our Heavenly Father who is good and holy and who has a beautiful kingdom that he invites us to pursue as we seek to do his will in the ordinary affairs of our life. So Jesus teaches us first to engage God in these ways because he is the one with whom we have to do. But the model of prayer doesn't just hang out with God in heaven. It comes down on earth. It has real legs. It makes a connection with the daily affairs of your life. As now we pray, join me in praying in verse 3. Read it from the screen. Give us each day our daily bread. We get to pray about our stuff, the important stuff to us. Because the use of the term bread there implies praying for the things that we truly need, like bread, which is a symbol in almost every culture for the things we need to sustain life. And note that we pray for daily bread, reminding us of the daily provision of manna for the Israelites in the wilderness. Remember that story? They're out in the wilderness. You can't grow stuff there. You can't eat stuff out there because there's nothing out there. But God provided this kind of frost that went down every night on the sand. The Israelites looked at it and they called it manna, which means, what is this? What is this stuff? You know, we're going to eat this? Are you crazy? But they gathered it up. It actually tasted good and it sustained them in their years in the wilderness. But it was something they had to collect daily. Remember, there were some smart people. I would have been probably one of these. Okay, I'll go out on Monday. I'll do five days worth of collection. I'll bring it back in, sit back and relax all week. Well, when they did that, that stuff got foul. It stank. Kind of like your refrigerator, you know, with those green things in the back, you know etc. It just was ugly. So they had to go out every single day with the exception of the Sabbath day. They didn't work on the Sabbath. So God said, okay, day before I'll give you two portions. Awesome. It was amazing. Just a way of reminding us that we need to go before God daily. We ask God for what we need each and every day. Because he's our heavenly father, we resist worrying about tomorrow because as Jesus said, tomorrow is going to take care of itself. But you can pray about today because he's our heavenly father who knows our needs and will take care of what those needs really are for us. You know, those of us here who are in the recovery movement, we probably have a, a lot to learn from you about what it means to live life, what? One day at a time. Don't worry about tomorrow. Just worry about today. I can live a sober, healthy godly life today and deal with my needs today. Tomorrow, I'll deal with that tomorrow. I'll be, I'll be talking to you tomorrow, Lord, about what's going on tomorrow. And how we put first things first, which is God and his kingdom and turning to him with our needs. Now, our life of prayer is concerned not only with stuff, but also with relationships 
and with reconciliation. And so we pray again together, say it, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now some English translations in the original uh, Bible language render this sins, what? Trespasses, or another one would be debts. Those are all great words. The word sin, what does that mean? It means missing the mark. God says, why don't you go this way? And we say, well, I think I'll go that way. And so we really miss the mark. We really do miss the mark. Trespasses, you know what a trespass is, when you kind of stomp all over somebody's stuff, you go on God's turf where he says, I don't want you here, I want you over here. And we incur by sins and trespasses debts. We're in people's debts. We've taken from them. We've messed with them. We've messed with God. We haven't gone God's way. And we need to repay those debts somehow. Well, the beauty of forgiveness, which we're praying about, which really is at the heart of our faith and our God, is that Jesus lived a life that never missed God's mark of holiness. And then he did the crazy thing, the thing that's just like nuts. He died to pay the penalty of everybody else who always missed the mark, always trespassed, and always had debts. He paid that debt, that eternal debt to God, which would be separation from him and from everybody else. He paid that debt so that we wouldn't have to. I wouldn't have done that if I were him. You know, if I lived this kind of life, I wouldn't be doing that for them. But then on the other hand, as God begins to work inside of me, I, th I guess maybe, I, maybe I, I would do that. Even for somebody who trespassed against me, somebody who, who has a debt to me, somebody who has sinned against me. And that's what we were praying about. We're praying that we would forgive our sins as we forgive others. But you notice that there's a measure of this forgiveness. Forgiveness is meted out according to a, a certain standard. Forgive us our sins, what? as we forgive those who sin against us. Yes, our God is all about forgiveness, but it's not just your being forgiven, but you're learning how to forgive other people, and my learning to do it too. You cannot have the one forgiveness without learning how to forgive. Because the God of the universe is a forgiving God, and if you choose to withhold forgiveness, you are cutting yourself off from the power of the universe that is a power of forgiveness. So just, again, all of us have been messed with, some of us in major ways, by all kinds of things, by people, by systems that are evil and unjust, by experiences that have happened to us that we haven't brought upon ourselves. Some of us have been damaged by things that we've done to ourselves and maybe we need to forgive ourselves. Holding on to unforgiveness with bitterness and resentment cuts us off from God. And so if we're wondering why we're not experiencing God as this loving Father, the one who forgives us and isn't out to say, hey, cut that out all the time. Maybe it's because we're not forgiving. And again, you can seek prayer about that and, and, and unload. And forgiving doesn't mean that you're excusing what happened. Forgiving doesn't mean that you're suddenly going to be friends with somebody who has really shafted you. It means that you're going to let God take care of that debt. And you're just going to stop holding it. Unforgiveness, somebody said, is like drinking poison and thinking the other person's going to die. Okay? Uh, some of us here are sick. Some of us here are struggling with physical problems, emotional problems, because of unforgiveness. This is something you need to deal with. This is a beautiful gift 
Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. And you know, this is huge. It not only affects personal relationships, it can affect an entire nation. On the screen now in front of you is the picture of Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the former president of South Africa, F.W. de Klerk. At, at the conclusion of the evil system of apartheid, the racist system of white supremacy in South Africa, Archbishop Tutu and some others established what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, in which victims of gross human rights violations could give public statements about their experiences, while those who mistreated them could do the same and could request forgiveness. Pictured here is when de Klerk came to Bishop Tutu and the commission to ask for forgiveness because he had perpetuated the system of apartheid when he was president. Forgiving and being forgiven has transformed this nation. And you know what? I wonder if it could do the same for this nation in these days if we were to practice repentance and forgiveness in this model of prayer. Now Jesus now teaches us to pray and read it from me uh, again from the screen. Save us from the time of testing. Now you may say, what the heck is that? Well, some translations say, lead us not into temptation. That's the usual, right? But I've always wondered about that. God, don't lead me into temptation. When the Bible says in James 1.13 that God doesn't tempt anyone. So why would we pray that? Well, it's because the word temptation can also be translated in English as testing or trial. So what I think's going on here is Jesus is asking us to pray to God for strength in the trials and the times of testing that we go through. And everybody's going through testing and trouble. There are times of testing that come from a group that's kind of on you or a, or a corporate or academic or community environment. Sometimes from the government. Sometimes from within us in the form of temptation. Sometimes from the church, friends. Can I hear an amen? Sometimes we've been tested by the church. And so we trust our Heavenly Father in these situations, knowing that as Paul says to the Christians in Corinth, with the testing, God will always provide a way of escape so that we may be able to endure it. That's what we're praying for. Lord, show me the way of escape so that I can endure this time of testing. Yeah, if you want to take it away, sure. But more than anything, I need the strength to endure it. We not only pray for strength, we pray for protection. So it's a tough world out there. So Jesus teaches us to pray. Again, say it with me. Deliver us from the evil one. Now you'll notice if you're reading from Luke that this prayer isn't in here. Those with a Bible might notice there's a little footnote that says some early manuscripts have and deliver us from the evil one. It's in the Gospel of Matthew version of this prayer. And it indicates that there is this need to pray about the reality of evil. Jesus, when he was on earth, had a mortal enemy in the form of the evil one, Satan and his demons. And so it's clear that we who follow Jesus are going to deal with the same stuff because it's still alive here. It's been dealt a mortal blow on the cross, but it's still hanging. And anybody here who's in law enforcement knows there is such a thing as evil in terms of what you've seen as a law enforcement officer. And that's the thing we need to pray about is deliverance from the evil one, not only for ourselves, but for this world. And particularly if you are seeking to follow Jesus and pursuing these holy habits that we're talking about, you are in the sights of the evil one. You are on his hit list. And so we need deliverance and protection from these deceptive and destructive powers that are leading us into places 
where we might well die. So we ask for God's powerful protection from these things, knowing that the one who is within us is greater than this one who is at work in the world. And so St. Paul tells us to arm ourselves against the enemy on a daily basis. As this pictured, he had in mind a Roman soldier such as you see on the screen. And he advises us in Ephesians 6 to take up both the defensive weapons of a renewed mind, which is the helmet, a righteous heart, which is the breastplate, a truthful character, which is the belt, a faithful life, which is the shield, as well as the offensive weapons of the word of God, the sword, and the gospel of peace that leads us into places of discord and challenge, that we don't run from those things. We face them and go into them together as Roman soldiers worked, working together. You can study all about that in Ephesians 6. 10 to 17 as you seek to be delivered from the evil one. Now most of us learn to conclude this prayer with a lovely and poetic ending. Let's say it together. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory and then we add forever and some say forever and ever and et cetera, et cetera. Now you'll notice this isn't in Luke 11. It's not in Matthew 6. It's not in the Bible. But it is in the early tradition of the church. It came in probably as early as 90 AD in the form of a teaching called the Didache. And I don't know about you, but whenever I pray this prayer, I sort of start feeling powered up when I say that. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. For, you know, it kind of it kind of gets you revved up it, it, because it reminds us that we're on the winning side, friends that this is a God who has power, who is glorious, and has a kingdom that is not going to get defeated. And it's kind of like, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in of this thing. I think it's a great way to end the prayer, and it's a great way for you to think. This is a great life, living a life of holy habits, following the Lord Jesus Christ. Life can be mean and nasty, but once you come into Christ, that meanness and that nastiness that persists and continues is overarched by these values and these realities. So here, in acknowledging that we don't know how to pray, we ask Jesus to teach us to do so. And we can use this prayer that he gave us and that he lived before us as a model for our developing a full-orbed life of prayer like his. But I have one more thought. It's really a form of a question. How does prayer happen? You know, is it just kind of you say stuff? I mean, do you have to use your mouth or is it in your head? Or I had all these questions when I first started praying. I still sometimes do, you know? It's kind of, how does, this, how does this work? Well, as we've seen, it's only working by God who's working in us. It's a mystery. Since it is only by his initiative that we even want to pray, but we have to somehow participate. We have to actually think it through, pray it through, whatever it is. What I'm going to suggest is that the most mysterious thing of all is that we need to hear what Jesus is praying for right now for us and for others and allow that prayer to become our own and to rebroadcast it, so to speak, in our way of praying. Let me explain. St. Paul tells us in Romans 8.34 that the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus is seated in his humanity and divinity at the right hand of God the Father and that from that place he is interceding for us. Paul states that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God and that the ongoing prayer of the Son of God for us to the Father is ample evidence of that love and a clear expression of that love. 
I thank Pastor Lou also for recently reminding me of an even more startling statement in Hebrews 7.25, not 10.25, is up there, that Jesus is able to save completely those who have come to God through him, and I hope that includes many of us here, because he always lives to intercede for them, to pray for them. He always lives to pray for us. It's sort of like now that the work that he did in living a sinless life and in dying on the cross for sinners like you and me, and now that he's resurrected and ascended, this is his main ministry now, is to sit at the Father's right hand and to talk to him about the things that he knows about that are going on in our life. He's still praying for us. So I tend to think that in spite of the fact that we're lobbing all this stuff up to God and there's nothing wrong with that, and I'm sure he welcomes that, there really is only one prayer in the universe. It's the prayer of Jesus. And it's being prayed by all of those beautiful people who you've known who are now with him. They're joining in that prayer. That's the intercession of the saints, friends. They join in his prayer, not making their own. And that somehow you and I have the opportunity to get connected with this. I wonder why, how Jesus is praying for you right now. I wonder how he's praying for me, for this church, or for this nation, or for this city, for this world. Now, we've already looked at the reason why we ask the Lord to teach us to pray since, as Romans 8.26 tells us, we don't know how to pray. But the verse goes on to tell us that God the Holy Spirit will help us to pray by praying for us. Let's read this on the screen, these two verses. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the Word of God. We don't know how to pray, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness to pray by interceding for us, but as it intimates there, by interceding in us with sighs, groans, some translations have it. The Holy Spirit doesn't that do that. We do that. We sigh. We groan. So it's the Holy Spirit praying the very prayer of Jesus for us and for others. And if, he will let, if we will let him teach us, we can pick up on that prayer of Jesus for ourselves and for others, and the Holy Spirit will pray it through us. I believe this is why St. Paul exhorts the Christians in Ephesus, after speaking to them of taking up the full armor of God, to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Let's say this together from the screen. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray in the Spirit. We not only use the model that Jesus gave us, we also engage the immediacy of his prayer for us through the Holy Spirit, who will help us to pray the very prayers of Jesus for us and for others. So here's the suggestion. Whenever you go to prayer, take a moment, will you, just to kind of listen and just ask God, um, teach me how to pray. How are you praying about what I want to speak to you about right now? And you might be surprised. You may get a word, you may get a picture, you may get a Bible verse, you may get a memory. Something may come to you that will be your idea, your sense uh, that the Holy Spirit will give you of how Jesus is praying 
right now. That's an essential key to developing a life of prayer, letting Jesus teach you how to pray, not only from the Bible, but also directly through the Holy Spirit. So, dear friends, join me in praying that Lord teach us to pray. Use his model of prayer and let his current prayer for you and for others be taught to you by the Holy Spirit at the very moment you pray along with him in real time. And then watch how your prayer life is transformed and your life becomes a life of prayer. You know, I want to just do a little practice for a moment, just a moment, of that idea that you can tune into the prayer of Jesus. I want you to take a moment right now to just turn to the Lord, however you do it. You don't need to close your eyes, but just ask, how are you praying for me? How is Jesus praying for you right now? Take a moment. Again, I don't know what it is that might be coming to you over these last three services. I've heard one little word from me. Grief. Grief. Our dog has died, and there's grief in my family. And maybe that's how Jesus is praying for me right now. And maybe that's something I ought to be praying about and looking into is the reality of grief. And, and then you can be asking, how is Jesus praying for this person or that person? How are you praying for them? Lord, teach me how to pray with you. And you wonder how Jesus might be praying through you in the days to come. I want to conclude by talking about prayer in one more way. Right now, we're between the celebration of the birthday of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on January 15th and Black History Month, which begins in a couple of days. Now, history extols Dr. King as a political leader of the civil rights movement. And current events reveal the ongoing struggle 55 years later to realize the dream that he spoke of on the Washington Mall in 1963. Maybe you're aware that recently, reel-to-reel tapes of a talk he gave in Worcester were discovered in the former Temple Sinai, which now is uh, the property of Worcester State. We got any Worcester State folks here? Well, your people were going through the place and they found a box of tapes. Those reel-to-reel things, you know, they put electrons on them and they made noise and so on. And they found music tapes belonging to the former rabbi. And they also found this. They sent it to, to Northwestern University and there it was, a one-hour lecture given by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King on March 12, 1961 in Worcester, Massachusetts, it's absolutely a stunning talk, friends, and you can find it on the web, just Martin Luther King, Worcester, it's all over. Because historians are really interested in this lecture because it has some of the very themes that Dr. King would later develop in, fuller, in a fuller way on the Washington Mall. But I'm also interested because it had another part to it. It was a question and answer session from citizens of Worcester, probably most of them white, probably including my own parents who lived around the corner and were people who would have gone to something like this. And it's of interest to me of the questions that they would ask in this city which has a very troubled racial history. But what I want you to know is that this movement, this civil rights movement was a movement of prayer. It was founded and birthed in prayer. Dr. King's and many others who were part of this movement. Yes, it involved political action. Yes, it involved nonviolent resistance. But it was a movement of prayer. And I wonder if today, if that same kind of movement of truth and peace and righteousness and justice might be advanced if there was a people of prayer who were praying in the ways in which we've been speaking uh, today.